0: Shift Happens, the podcast. Hello and welcome to our latest episode. I'm your host, Mareike Mattis. Most of us have gotten used to working remotely, seeing the colleagues only in virtual meetings, even working in teams where you've never seen your colleagues in person before. And many of us see the benefits of working from home, the flexibility, maybe efficiency, the convenience of not having to commute, etc., However, new studies and one of them conducted by mental health America partnering with the job portal FlexJobs, have now shown that the stress level has actually been building up during remote work. So what we're missing because of only using virtual tools to communicate and work with each other is adding stress. So the question we need to ask is how do we do remote work well. My guest today is the American University lecturer, Dr. Kim Aquaintance. He has taught in Scotland, the US and Germany and works not only as a lecturer, coach and keynote speaker, but is also the founder of IQ Gemini and Move to Think, a company that offers a new approach to linking mind and body for better collaboration and creativity in teams. Kimo, you came as the keynote speaker to our recent annual meeting at Siemens GBS, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have you now as a guest on our podcast. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Reich. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I just mentioned one of those studies saying that there has been the tendency for many people working remotely that their stress levels have actually gone up. What would you say are typical factors that are causing the stress?
1: Well, when we look at the rise in stress that we're seeing, I mean, all over the world, everywhere where people have shifted you know, pretty quickly to remote work, I think there's kind of two categories of things that are causing that stress. The first are, are what we might call external factors or factors that are part of the nature of being in a lockdown during a pandemic. People are experiencing a lot of fear and uncertainty around the world, uh, in the world around us. People face all kinds of challenges about working from home, you know, especially for working parents whose kids aren't able to go to school now. It's, there's, a, there's a number of things which are just very, very stressful overall. But then I think there are, there's a whole second layer of stresses that we add to our work by the way that we're working remotely. And so when I look at most companies, you know, most of the clients that I work with, when, when you look at their schedules, they've just got, you know, from morning till evening, they've got a full schedule of video conferences. They're in video conferences all day long. And the way that most of those video conferences work, you're, you're speaking to a screen full of people and you see a little image of yourself, and that's enormously stressful over time. We're not used to constantly seeing ourselves when we're speaking. It would be like if we went into meetings all the time and we held up a little mirror to ourselves. But also the, the nature of that technology means that we're not really synchronized with other people. There's always some sort of slight delay. And, and as human beings, we're designed to synchronize with each other. We're designed to kind of regulate each other's emotions and keep sending all kinds of subtle signals, whether or not we're understanding each other, we're connected, we like or dislike what we're saying. And often those signals are getting lost or they're slightly delayed. So I might say something to you or I'll say something to a group. And then it's a couple seconds before they react. And in that slight pause, there's an uncertainty. Did they hear what I said? Did I say something wrong? And so that's a little stress trigger. And and one of those is fine. And 10 of those might be okay. But if you have 500 of those over the course of the day, that just Adds up. The stress just piles up. Um, On top of that, you know, we have all of the ways that we're working right now, which are, you know, when we're in those meetings, we're often, you know, quiet during it. You know, someone's leading it, or we're just receiving new information. So a lot of people are feeling invisible through the day, and feeling invisible, feeling like you're not seen, you're not heard, you're not really connected to a group often triggers a perception of threat unconsciously. It's just how we're designed to be very sensitive to when we're excluded from a group. Um, And when you add that to this next layer, which is the physical layer that most of us are sitting in chairs all day long, and we're not really moving throughout the day, we're also being disconnected from the experience of our bodies, which means that it becomes harder for us to perceive our emotions. It becomes harder for us to be in contact with what our real emotions are and, and that experience over time leads us to feeling lost, confused and frustrated.
0: One of your central statements in your keynote was that what we need is psychological trust and safety to do great remote work. What would be ways to achieve this?
1: Yeah. One of the things that's come out from a lot of research has been an enormous amount of research out of psychology, but also, you know, big companies like Google who have really done deep studies of what makes for effective teams. Everything that we've learned shows us that psychological safety, being able to be ourselves and feel secure in our groups is the absolute foundation of, of high performance teams. And when we look at at how do we actually create psychological safety, it's really a combination of kind of psychological practices and physical practices. So I would say we have two levels that we really need to focus on. The first is how do we take care of ourselves and how do we individually practice coming down out of stress? Being in a constant state of stress, a constant state of anxiety, physiologically takes us out of this ability to really be open to other people, to be sensitive to the information they're communicating. So, so what I always ask uh, groups when I work with them, what are you doing physically and mentally to keep your well-being up, to, to take care of yourself? How are you moving through the day? How are you making pauses in your work so that you can bring your stress level down? So that's the first step. The second is, is how do we prepare our meetings so that we're creating opportunities, we're really designing opportunities for people to feel connected. That is, they feel seen. They, their ideas, their feelings, what their concerns are, are witnessed by other people. So when we go on that level, what we're really looking at is, is how do we do things like checking in with a group so that we give everyone who's in our team meetings an opportunity to say something, to become visible, How are we using things like shared documents so that we're keeping group alignment as we work through the day? How are we using even group exercises like movements and breathing so that the group gets a feeling when they need to of Feeling physiologically connected, that we feel that we're we're kind of in synchronous uh, movement together, which is a really powerful way to get us aligned, bring our nervous systems into this regulated state, where we're open to communicate, we're open to collaborate. These are things we would always be doing normally if we were in an office together. We would have a meeting. We would go out in the hallway. We'd walk together. We'd walk to lunch. All of that movement together would trigger that sense of of kind of, we call it entrainment, I can explain that later, but it's this whole series of triggers that we are actually connected to each other. So how do we build that back into remote work? That's a huge question.
0: Yeah, and you just mentioned these exercises to connect mind and body to really make participants, even in virtual meetings, focus more. Could you maybe talk us through one of these exercises, what that might look like?
1: Yes, there's an exercise I use as a demonstration with groups. I use it as a demonstration of how closely linked our minds and our bodies are and how we can physically trigger the experience of being safe and how that changes how we experience each other psychologically or how we communicate with each other. Um, so, so one of my favorites, it's really my favorite kind of neurobiological hack, um, is, is, is just a simple eye movement exercise. And all that you need to be able to do is move your head and eyes. So what I have everyone do is you can do this sitting. Um, It's often really good if you do this laying down. It's something I do almost every night before I go to sleep you just do a quick kind of range of motion test on your head. That is you turn your head to the, to the right until you kind of meet some resistance. You're not stretching you're not trying to, you know, twist your neck. You're just trying to turn your head until you get to a natural point when you meet resistance and you're kind of marking what you see. So you're marking that range of motion in your mind. Then you turn your head to the left. You do the same thing on that side. And then this exercise is really just a simple movement of your eyes. So you would start by keeping your head facing forward and turn your eyes as far as you can over to the right and then hold them there. So it's almost like an eye stretch. And when you're doing that, you're kind of looking as far over as you can while keeping your head pointed forward. And you'd wait until... You might feel a yawn. Some people feel like "Mm, a little shift in their diaphragm or their breathing slows a little bit. Some signal that's being sent to your body that "Mm, something's happening. Then when that happens, bring your eyes back forward. And then we do the same thing with the left side. So you turn your eyes as far as you can to the left. And you'd hold them there in this little like eye stretch. You're really looking. You're looking what's over on the left side. And you'd wait, for some people it's a few seconds, some people it's 30 seconds, until you'd get to this little yawn, little change in breathing, then bring your eyes back forward. Okay, that's it. You're done. Now do the range of motion test again. So turn your head as far as you can to the right or the left. And almost everybody who does this, I mean, when I do this with large groups, usually about 90% of the people notice a real difference, a real increase in the range of motion. And so the question is, how, why? What, was, what just happened here? How did moving our eyes allow us to, to move our head, to, to change the way that we move our head, to open up this range of motion? And this is a really great little demonstration of this, this connection between mind and body, because what we're doing, when we look to the far right and the far left, we're signaling to ourselves that we are safe We're looking around and checking out our environment. And when we recognize that we are safe, our body relaxes. And this is something that's also connecting the the muscles that connect the the, the eyes that, that control that motion are also linked to the muscles that stabilize the first two vertebrae in our neck. And so when those relax, the first two vertebrae kind of come into a better alignment. We also experience this increase of blood flow to all of the nerves and the muscles that control our facial expressions, that control our voice, how rich and resonant and and how vibrant it is. It, It feeds more blood to the muscles that control our ears, that actually tune our ears to the frequency of other people speaking. So it's a wonderful way to trigger something that's called the social engagement system, which is the part of our nervous system that responds when we feel safe and opens us up to more, openly communicate with other people and to more easily understand them. So there are lots of other exercises that I can do with a group, but that's a simple one that everyone can do without having to do any kind of movements or that, you know, everyone can do it just sitting down. And it's a, a really nice intro into why this connection between mind and body and why being able to practice being safe, knowing that we're safe, is such a key to improving our ability to collaborate.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I can only invite everyone listening to this um, to just follow that exercise. So i just followed it in parallel while you were um, guiding through it. And I definitely could see that effect. Now, I also remember from your keynote that you gave um, that you said that if you could teach only one thing to teams around the world, it would be active listening.
1: Oh yeah, active listening. Active listening is, is like a team superpower that's hidden in plain sight. Um, and, and I think it's hidden because it's so simple and it seems so obvious that most people think they don't need it. And I'll explain active listening is really just the practice. Um, and it works best when you're in pairs or in small groups. So when you're in a group of three to four, it's perfect. It's the practice of just listening to each other. And so the way that I would do this in teams is as uh, I will usually break up the team. You know, If I come into a group and we've got 15 people there, I'll break them up into groups of three or four. And then each member of the team takes turns talking about where they are, talking about what they think about a particular project, You know, whatever's kind of on the agenda for the day. They'll spend time reflecting on that and speaking on it. And, and I usually give them three to five minutes per person. So they go through that time and the other people who are in their group Are just listening. So when one person is speaking, no one else is responding. No one else is kind of adding in information or, you know, following up with an idea or asking questions. You're just giving people a chance to speak without being interrupted. Okay. When I work with teams on this and they haven't done that before, they always think, oh, it's really awkward. Why do I want to just speak uninterrupted? You know, it's a difficulty, especially for teams that are really smart that are really used to getting ideas, reacting to them quickly, throwing in new ideas, you know, kind of bouncing things back and forth. But when they do it, when any team does it, what they see is that it has an enormous impact on how connected and aligned they are. That is any project, no matter how much people have been working on it, there's always miscommunication, there's always misalignment. And when you do active listening, what you're triggering is you're triggering two different levels of psychological safety. And both of these connect to to really increase your ability to be aligned with each other. So the first level is it gives everyone an opportunity to be witnessed without being judged or evaluated. Okay, that's enormously helpful for everybody because one, it triggers this feeling of psychological safety and two, people actually listen to each other rather than listen to their own thoughts of what they want to say next to keep things moving forward. But it also triggers this physiological level of safety because when you speak uninterrupted for a couple of minutes, the vibrations from your vocal cord tone something called the ventral vagal nerve, nerve complex, which is this system of nerves that come off the brainstem and connect to all of our facial muscles, our voice, our ears, when the vocal cords vibrate and they vibrate touching that nerve, that entire nervous system helps us relax. It helps us feel safe and it opens up all these channels of communicating and collaborating much, much more effectively with a much wider range of genuine emotion. And, and when I've done that, with teams, I always get strong reactions from them because usually people have, have, even if they've worked with a team for a long time, they've never really listened to each other. And I've had senior managers come to me and say, Wow, that act of listening, I realize I've never really listened to, to, my, to the people who work for me. I've never really listened to my team. And when that happens, it's just a dramatic switch effect that people start really caring about being aligned in a different way. It's just a huge superpower that most people ignore because it seems just too easy to have such an effect.
0: You have also taught at many companies in Germany where you currently live and also at companies in the US, Facebook and Google among those. And in your keynote, you showed us a photo of the new Apple headquarters and they're actually built in a circle. Why is that?
1: Yeah, the Apple headquarters, if, if, if people have, have you not seen it, I, I really recommend looking it up. Um, it's this really dramatic architecture of this giant ring uh, that's out in Silicon Valley. And the interesting thing about it, so it's got this big ring of the building, and then there's this, there's this big green space, almost like a park in the middle. That headquarters was designed by Steve Jobs specifically to facilitate walking meetings um, Steve Jobs was a huge proponent of walking meetings. He experienced that uh, and he believed that it had a real impact, a positive impact on creativity and connection and alignment with, with teams. And now there's this wonderful research that's come out of Stanford University that there's a really dramatic impact on teams, on groups walking together, especially on their creativity and their problem solving skills. So one of the things that happens when we start walking together is pretty quickly we start to match each other's pace. And then people will start to match each other's the way they kind of hold their arms. And then people will start mirroring each other's facial expressions or gestures. And this process is something called entrainment. And entrainment is one of the most basic ways that we're designed to get connected to each other and to mirror each other and kind of regulate each other's emotions. And when we do this, it triggers this wonderful explosion of all kinds of impacts of feeling psychologically safe and connected. And one of those is we're just much more creative. We're much more able to trust each other. So that's one thing that I can really recommend to anybody who has the possibility to do it even during these, these pandemic times. And certainly uh, as a practice after this, try to have meetings with small groups where you go walking.
0: So walk and talk, everyone. <laughs>
1: yeah, walk and talk.
0: <laughs> and another technique that is, uh, for example, heavily used at Google is using a particular form of problem solving. And they use so-called how might we statements.
1: Yeah, the, the how might we statements are, are pretty interesting. So, so this actually came out of Google, you know, uses this in a lot of different places. But this came out of some research in the 1950s from uh, basically a, a, an organizational development specialist who, who was working in the United States. And what he had been doing at the time was that he had been researching how executives uh, basically approach strategy development. And so he'd made recordings of all of these senior executive teams and big companies across the U.S. basically doing problem solving in strategy sessions. And and he was looking for, you know, maybe there was a structure in the way that successful teams would solve these problems. And, you know, he could build that into some research. But the beautiful thing that came out of that is that he had all these recordings and he asked one of his graduate students to transcribe them. Now the graduate student who did the transcription was also uh, trained in psychology and what he noticed and what he brought to this professor's attention very quickly was listen to these groups. When they start doing problem solving, listen to what happens to their voices and what happened to the voices of all of these high powered executives was within a few minutes of doing this kind of classical problem solving, their voices became really, uh, they became really strained. And he said, They're all experiencing anxiety and stress. It's degrading. It's decreasing their ability to connect to each other, to really do the problem solving they're trying to do. And so when they dug into it, they found out uh, what seems obvious now in retrospect, but very few people have ever learned this. When we do traditional problem solving, we trigger people's stress responses. Because the way we often do problem solving is we start looking for, okay, what's the problem and who caused this and who needs to fix this and you know, who's responsible and how do we move forward? And what we're doing is we're signaling to people that there's lots of blame to go around. So we're doing all kinds of judging and evaluating and we're also disconnecting because most people think, well, if it's not my fault, then somebody else needs to do it. And so people start pulling back away from each other in this process. So, Understanding that he developed this alternative method that he called visions of future potential, where instead of having the group's problem solve, they would look at the problems and they would say, how might we develop something in the future? How might we create a future that we all agree would be better? And what this led to is this, this, how might we statement and how might we Challenge statements are really at the design, uh, really at the heart of something called design sprints and design thinking. And and what that process is, is you take a problem, have a group analyze the problem, sort of boil it down to say, yeah, this is really our problem. And then you have them shift that problem into a challenge statement that begins with, how might we? So if the problem is, you know, we have too many meetings and everyone doesn't have enough time to rest, how might we give our people more time to rest? Or how might we make decisions without needing meetings? But that how might we formula completely changes the psychological dynamic. Because now instead of evaluating and blaming, what you're doing is you're inviting people to connect with each other and create solutions together. The how indicates that we don't know how yet. The, the might indicates that we might get it right the first time, but we might not, so failure's okay. And the we indicates this is something we are taking responsibility for. And that simple change in the structure of of wording these things triggers this massive increase in psychological safety. People feel witnessed. They feel connected. They're much more capable of creating something together that that takes them closer to the future that they want.
0: I also remember you talking about the pitfall that many companies Experience or face that decisions are often made too quickly without actually giving a team the time to reflect on a topic on a decision, so you advocate for companies to really slow down their decision process yeah
1: you know, one of the things that i'm that i'm advocating is is when you look at the companies that are doing remote work well and you compare that to the companies that have had to suddenly make the shift to doing distributed work and are really struggling with it. One of the big differences between those two types of companies is that the companies that are very successful at doing distributed work, they don't have meetings all day long. They don't have, you know, MS Teams or Zoom conference calls all day long. Because when you do that, what you're forcing everyone into is you're forcing your entire organization into a reactive mode. What most people do is they just go from meeting to meeting and every meeting is someone throwing new information at them and they have to quickly react to it. Now, when you start taking distributed work or remote work seriously, one of the first changes that, that companies should be making is they should be making changes to how they make decisions so that they start to use good asynchronous processes. That is, they used good tools so that people can start to do the decision-making process, but not have to do it all at the same time. Now, when you do this, what happens is you might slow down the pace of some decisions because you're not just going meeting to meeting, making constant decisions. But what you do when you slow that down is you give people time to reflect. So you get better quality contributions from people who are introverted, and who might not speak in a live meeting when there's lots of extroverted, loud, or powerful people dominating the conversation. And you, you increase the quality of contribution from, from whoever is not a native speaker of the language that you're using. So if you're using English and, and people who don't have English as a, as, a, as a first language, now they have time. They have time to reflect. They have time to make a good contribution. So what you do is you you vastly increase the quality of decisions, which means you spend far less time trying to get people back into alignment because you've made mistakes, trying to fix mistakes, trying to do basically what half the work of most people in a company is, which is fixing problems that came from making decisions um, too poorly.
0: I just quickly want to come back to the exercises that you mentioned before in the beginning to sort of synchronize and get more focused. Now, I could imagine that not everybody always feels comfortable to do, for example, movements in front of the camera, especially when we're doing when we're having to do that remotely, um, or to generally open up to such methods. So how do you convince your participants?
1: Yeah, with, with any of these, with any of these new ways of doing something, um, people are going to feel insecure about it. They're gonna, they don't want to look stupid. They don't want to waste their time, and so the way to break out of that is to help people feel safe enough before they try some new change. And the way that I like to make people feel safe, you know, and this works really well in Germany, it works really well in most Western countries, is I want to appeal to their rational mind first. So I always explain the rational scientific basis behind anything that we're going to do. Then it's easier for most people to give themselves permission to try something out and experience it for themselves. So that's my advice when introducing something new is introduce something new that you really, first of all, that you really understand and then explain that. Now don't just throw people into the new situation and hope that they feel as great as you do when they do it. Let, Let their minds relax and work with their rational mind first.
0: And also in that context, what is the rule of two feet?
1: Oh yeah, so this this connects really closely to all of that. So whenever I run workshops, I want to make sure that everything, and I mean everything, their participation in the meeting, every activity that we do, every exercise that we do is optional. So I'm always reminding people that they are invited to try something. And I would say, if I do an exercise, a physical exercise, for example, I'll say, um, I invite you to try this out if you'd like to, you know, stand up. If you don't, it's okay. You can just stay seated. It's no problem. And, and I use something called, um, they call it the law of two feet. And it's, um, it, it's a nice rule that I think if we use this well in our companies, it would vastly improve a lot of outcomes. But the rule of two feet basically says, if you don't feel that you're getting value out of what we're doing, or you're not contributing or adding value you should use your two feet and you should find a place where you can add value or you can get value. It's always more powerful to create invitations and let people opt into things much more than mandating things that people should do and telling them what they have to do. I think if every company instituted this, this law of two feet and, and made all the participation in everything that they do optional, I think for most companies, it would devolve into total chaos in the first two weeks. And then very quickly, you would see a new kind of self-organized structure come up that would be much, much better. When people really know that they're able to do what they feel is right, uh, I, I think you'd have a vastly improved culture.
0: Thank you so much for sharing these really interesting insights, Kimo. And for those of our listeners who are curious to connect with Kimo, uh, just look him up on LinkedIn, where he regularly shares new research and ideas. And now before we go, I'm curious to hear what you'll have to say in our recurring shift checkout. What's been different for you today compared to yesterday?
1: Uh, what's been different for me today compared to yesterday is I'm I'm much more relaxed because yesterday I had uh, a big keynote talk that I gave to a group and uh, because of the technology I couldn't see them and so it was a lot of energy trying to work with them and imagine what was happening and it's difficult. So today uh, I've got the load <laughs> off. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling much more relaxed.
0: And what do you hope has changed in a hundred years?
1: In 100 years, I hope our society has learned how to take our mental health and our skills at navigating our own inner world as seriously as we take navigating things in our outer world, like our jobs and making money. Um, I firmly believe that the next evolution in our species is going to be led by people who've learned how to truly navigate the power of their unconscious minds and truly learned how to harness and work with the power of their emotions.
0: And you can uh, formulate our shift mantra for this week. And it always starts with shift happens, so.
1: (laughs) Okay, shift happens, so decide where you want to go and be the one doing the shifting.
0: Thank you so much, Kimo. Um, It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: Absolutely a pleasure talking to you, Marika. Thank you so much for everything.
0: That was Shift Happens. Make sure to follow us on Siemens FM, the Siemens My Learning World, Spotify, and everywhere under the hashtag ShiftHappens.